It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Guys, I'm eating junk and watching rubbish. You better come out and stop me. Hi, this is Dick Miller. If you're listening to Junk Food Cinema, who are these guys? Night has fallen on Hollywood Boulevard. And it's time for a streetwise episode of Junk Food Cinema, brought to you by filmschoolrejects.com. Dot com. Dot com. Dot remind me never to get murdered. This is, of course, the podcast that satisfies covering the movies that you crave. I'm your host, Brian Salisbury, and this is normally where I tell you that I'm joined by my co-host, C. Robert Cargill. But Cargill is currently hot on the trail of a breakfast serial killer, so he will not be joining us. But in his stead, we have a very special guest, a director and producer on the fantastic Queer for Fear documentary on Shudder. He also appears in In Search of Darkness Part 3 and is the co-host of the Aughts Tyrion podcast, which I really want to talk about as well, because that led to a really fun uh, kind of Venn diagram crossover between me and this gentleman. Mr. Sam Wyman, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me on. I am so, so excited that you're here because two things, and I'm just going to immediately overstep my bounds and say two things that convinced me we were going to be best friends. Tell me everything. (laughs) <laughs> in, in search of darkness three you have this whole moment that wraps up that episode where you're reject, re- rejecting the dichotomy evaluation of cinema as good or bad yeah and what you said about finding personal and culture va- and cultural value in trash it was like you were unknowingly crafting the junk food cinema charter and i was just like i have to get him on the show like he's <sighs> he's speaking our truth right now i love to hear that yeah absolutely i think that if I'm going to look back and find our history and, and really look at what our culture is at the time, that's where I'm going to look. I'm going to look at the trash. I, yes. it's, it's going to show exactly who we are um, in a more naked way, I think. Which is going to be the most, the more interesting revisit going back and looking at commercials for cabbage patch kids or watching the garbage pail kids movie. Like just like really think about that for a second, which one's going to be the more unique experience. Well, I don't know, man. Cause I love old commercials. And I gotta oh say, yes so it depends it depends on how bonkers this cabbage patch commercial is fair point but but garbage pail kids i mean what a moment what a huge moment is back and I, i've talked about this many times on the show 
uh, you know, when we were kids and things were allowed to be gross, yes. like toys and properties that we played with were allowed to be disgusting. And I feel like we've gotten away from that. And that's part of the cultural downfall uh, that we are all experiencing. Yeah, I used to do. Do you do you remember the first time you saw Garbage Pail Kids, the movie? Did you see it as a kid? I I don't think I was brave enough to see it as a kid. I saw it as sort of a, a late jaded teenager, but I still really loved it. <laughs> I love how in the 80s, every kid's movie is just actually a horror movie. Yes. It's like, I was scared shitless. I Garbage Pail Kids were like my favorite thing in the world. I had the stickers all over my wall, which like I wasn't supposed to do, but it's fine. And like when I showed, like finally got to talk my parents into watching that movie. It was so scary. I was like watching it between my finger, the fingers of my hands, I think. You know, it's yeah. like, ah, uh, but yeah, a classic. And, and that brings me to the second thing that convinced me that we were going to be best friends is that you like me, have a love for esoteric 90s promotional videos that have the audacity to feign a narrative. Oh, yes. Oh, my God, <laughs> yes. I, Friend, when you text or when you tweeted me, like quoting, I call it Happy Birthday Barbie, but I know that the official title is uh, Barbie Birthday Party Epcot 94. Hey, kids, it's time to join the fun at the Barbie Birthday Party at Walt Disney World Epcot 94. Who knew why that didn't land? Yeah, that um, sounds like a bad translation. Like somebody translating the <laughs> Korean title to that video or something. Yeah, it's like, okay, I, I don't know what the thought process behind that is. But then when you see it, it's like, oh, I don't know what the thought process behind any of this is. <laughs> um, it is I mean, for, for those who haven't seen it, which is probably everybody. Um, but if you haven't, you're my friend. Uh, or if you have. <laughs> uh, so it's like two girls who give us a cultural tour of Epcot uh, going around the world to each spot. And it ends in a Barbie musical celebrating her birthday. And these girls go on a tirade. They like open Barbie's presents. They eat her cake. It's so rude. I love it. <laughs> they literally eat her birthday cake, which sounds like some kind of uh, some kind of euphemism about like like taking over her popularity or something. But the other thing that because uh, I watched this because of you, I heard you mention it on the uh, Otsterian podcast. And I was like, well, that sounds like exactly the kind of thing that I try to track down on oh, YouTube. So I watched it. And in addition to the fact that the actual Barbie show that was being put on at Epcot, that this whole thing is just a, a backdoor promotion for is insane. The other thing that I could not stop thinking about the whole time is who taught these girls how to project and how to like speak for the camera because they are talking very much like this as loud as they possibly can. I was like, oh my God, why are you yelling at me? I thought we were going to have fun at Epcot today. And you know when they're holding those microphones, they're off. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like people Absolutely. are like, that's it. Enough's enough. Like Lisa and <laughs> Stephanie need to be stopped. <laughs> These girls. And and also what it was what is so special about this VHS tape is you got it for a it was a one penny if you purchased a Barbie doll at Toys R Us for $9.99 or more in the year 1994. Oh. So it's like, here's a commercial. Like, what a time when we it's like we're gonna give you yeah, a half an hour commercial for a penny, and you're going to love it. I've seen this movie probably more than any movie in my whole life. I run it every year at every friend's birthday party. 
As well you should. And I had to, in turn, uh, introduce to you one that was very big in my childhood for reasons I don't fully understand was the video toy chest from 1990 that was made by, depending on where you got the tape, either Child's World or Children's Palace. Show is always KZ. Okay, and roll sound and video and you notes. It's the video toy chest brought to you by Child World. What, what art? It's art. It's it's <laughs> cinema. It is. It's the it's the narrative uh, kind of arcs that I need in my in my uh, commercials. I thought you were asking the question like, "What is art?" Like it made you question <laughs> what that word even means after you saw it. And I'm like, I'm on board. I no, totally no. This movie answered it. This is art. <laughs> no questions asked. I mean, how did we exist in our lives without Robo T? Like before we ever got to know Robo T, <laughs> how were we complete people? Who is that? Well, Robo T is my name, and rapping is my claim to fame. Cause everything I say and do raps and rhymes like Ted and Sue. Now that you know what I'm all about, it's time to simply rap the light out. Wait, have you seen this? Is like a cartoon, but it's still a commercial for not doing drugs. Um, cartoon All Stars to the Rescue. I think it's 1990. That sounds so familiar. Is that the one that had like? a bunch of Hanna-Barbera cartoons coming together and trying to get you off drugs. It's got Winnie the Pooh. It's got Muppet Babies. It's got Elf. This is like, it is every cartoon that was like popular at that time. I can't believe that there's a crossover and there's still a scene of a kid with crack. I mean, like it is. (laughs) And then suddenly in the, in like the third act of this thing, there's a a musical number about saying no. um, And all of the excuses that you can come up with, which I don't know if those will work, but uh, it's, it's, oh uh, it, it, for considering your taste, I just have to highly recommend this. I think it may be your new favorite animated film. I mean, just from the description alone, I mean, I'm going to let you finish infinity war, but this is the most <laughs> ambitious crossover of all time. Are you kidding me? Oh, and stay tuned after the credits for just one extra song. Oh God. There's a post credit <laughs> song. Nick Fury comes out and recruits Winnie the Pooh into the anti-drug Avengers. It's amazing. Guys go watch it. <laughs> I can't wait to get my eyeballs on this. And and coming back to something else you said about when we were kids, everything was horror. I remember one of the big movies in my life was uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Oh, yeah. Which, of course, has the infamous Large Marge segment where it's just like, hey, let's use claymation to fuck up children forever. Yeah, here's a nightmare package. <laughs> Please press play. <laughs> yeah, I, I loved that movie. Uh, or, I mean, I love that show. I saw that movie and I think I haven't seen it since because it scared me so bad. <laughs> <laughs> Which I totally, totally understand. And and Marge still looms large for me. I can tell you that 100%. And my therapist can speak to that as well. <laughs> that is a nice segue because, you know, they made a sequel to Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Big Top Pee-wee, in which there was a tiny, tiny character named uh, Midge, who was played, of course, by Susan Tyrell, who appears in the movie that we're going to talk about today. Do you see how I did that? All the gymnastics there? That's so good. No, that was easy. <laughs> Academy Award lists. Susan Tyrell. It's a fucking crime. <laughs> yeah. The the only, honestly, the only problem I have with the movie we're talking about today is there's not enough Susan Tyrell, but that's my problem with most movies, if we're being honest. Uh, but the movie we're talking today about today is Angel from 1984. Her name is Angel. She's unlike any high school student you've ever met. Are you having difficulty making friends? I'm on top of the honors list. There's more to life than getting straight A's. 
Her only friends are on the streets. Her only chance is on her own. You're young, attractive, healthy. You're swimming around in a toilet bowl. I was alone. Where's your mom, Angel? One day I came home from school and she was gone. Just that note, a hundred dollar bill. I just put on some sexy clothes and high heels and went out and made a living. Everything in life has a price on it, Angel. Somewhere down the line, you're going to have to pay. It's my life. Angel, her two worlds are about to collide. Ah! Remind me never to get murdered. <laughs> <laughs> Angel, it's her choice, her chance, and her life. Directed by Robert Vincent O'Neill, and I just have to ask you, Sam, why was this Angel on high upon your shortlist when I asked you what movie you wanted to cover? Well, first off, I've never been able to talk about this movie with anybody, not yet. And I've done a lot of, you know, I have a podcast and we don't cover this material because we cover all 2000s era stuff. And so it's like diving into a movie from 1983 is like awesome. But for me personally, um, as a queer viewer, it's like this is set in 1983, which is, you know, AIDS emerged in 1981. It was a dark time to be queer, um, especially Mm -hmm. like visibly queer. And, uh, And in this movie... There are so many queer characters and they are done well. It's unbelievable. And yet it's like something that we never talk about. It, 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 to me, it raises the bar even for the kinds of uh, portrayals we see today. Um, it just feels so authentic and it's about like chosen family. So for me, it's that is why like that's the heart of it and why I wanted to dig into it. Um, on the trash side, I mean, legitimately, all you have to do is look at the box art. <laughs> it looks like like right like an 80s like uh what's like barely legal porno and then 100 oh, like, and the tagline is even worse it's like high school honor student by day hollywood hooker by night yeah and, it seems like a porn film and it's like, got it, it, a girl like dressed way down like obviously she's in her 20s but dressed to be 15 and it's like ooh. I am so glad to hear you say that because one of the things that because I saw this at a Terror Tuesday in Austin years ago. And one of the things that struck me about it is I did think that the portrayals of the queer characters was pretty sensitive. But I also realized that having that thought as a cis white guy, I was like, maybe I'll wait for somebody else to tell me that's correct. But I really did feel like this movie is not being judgmental about anybody other than it's not judgmental towards sex workers. It's judgmental towards the guys who uh who patronize sex yes. workers for sure as it should be but yeah the i'm like the cops are like actually they actually care about this community of of streetwalkers and street performers and like it really did present a what a much more sort of i guess you could say liberal view of of even though the 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 concept is sleaze-tastic i mean the the plot literally is Molly, a high schooler, secretly earns a living as Angel, a street prostitute. She is a 14-year-old prostitute. Like, this may be the sleaziest conceit that Roger Corman ever signed off on, and that is saying something.
This was a New World Pictures release, and it was also released by some company called Adam's Apple Pictures. So again, I'm like, is this porn? The first time I watched it, I'm like, it says New World. I know what New World is, but Adam's Apple Films also yeah. sounds like a porn company. I'm like, okay. I mean, because this movie has been re- had been recommended to me for a really long time before I actually watched it. Um, and that's kind of those are the kind of the things that kept me like I was intrigued, but I was like, mm-hmm. this isn't going to be for me. It just right. because if it's catering to this audience, I know that audience isn't me and that audience might not even like me. And so right. the movie might not be something that like we would both enjoy. And yet here is this <laughs> delicious platter of uh, of something for everybody, I would say, but I can't speak for everybody. <laughs> so something for me. I mean, there's definitely I feel like this is a, a very welcoming movie to for a lot of different reasons. Not all of them good, I will say, but uh <laughs> One of the things that I was so impressed by with this movie is the cast and crew put together here. Like, you know, we mentioned Robert Vincent O'Neill, but I'm way more interested in who shot this movie. Uh, who shot this movie was Andrew Davis, who, of course, became like the premier. If you're making a, sh- a action movie that is it, even partially based in Chicago, you get Andrew Davis. He did, you know, The Fugitive, The Package, Under Siege with Steven Seagal. Like he went on to have a major career and he's the cinematographer on this movie. And he and I and I have to say, one of the things you notice about this movie right away is how beautifully it's fucking shot. Immediately. It's a movie that makes me want to go back in time and see LA in the 80s, except I know it's probably just very similar, but it's the way it's shot is so gorgeous. It's like neon lights. We're on Hollywood Boulevard. And it's like, this is a it's just such a he captures this moment in such a stylized way. And I'm like, oh my God, this is gonna be the movie? Like right away. And then the, the sunset that opens this movie, it's like, hey, um, amazing. Like, I, I'm on board for this movie that right. is clearly an art film. Yeah. Uh, art film, angel, um, high school honor student hooker. Yeah. <laughs> it's a real ratatouille of adjectives that's describing this film. And you know what's interesting plot wise is that just because it, uh, it's about a group that's being targeted by a serial killer, that group being sex workers who, like, police don't care about. And we have something like Dahmer right which came out this year completely like that's a completely different way to approach the story it's like the way mm-hmm. that angel approaches this it's like the material is dark but it never feels dark or it rarely feels dark right it doesn't descend into full on like and, and i i watch a lot of these type of movies so for me there are certain boxes that get ticked off and one of them is the creepy naked serial killer for mm. some reason in every single one of these movies, there has to be a moment where the killer stands naked in a grimy hotel room and either looks in a mirror or is bathing himself. Like, it's just a thing they all do. Yeah, It's like this weird fear of, and, and maybe, I don't know if, if maybe now I'm diving too deep into this, but I don't know if it's this whole, like, like fear of nudity. I don't know what, it, I don't know how the, how the sexual politics of these scenes always end up in these movies. But it, even though that that scene is in here, the killer seems a little bit more, I don't want to say goofy, but like his plans never really go the way that makes you think he is in any way capable or has a lot of agency. <laughs> yeah, it's wild. He's just like swinging wildly oh, yeah. into into everybody's life. I mean, it's like he just he exists chaotically and somehow gets away with it. And it's like, I believe that he gets away with it, but he's just burning fast and bright and like waiting for somebody to stop him like he's the hitcher or something. Yeah, 100%. Like he the first time, the first time he is brought in for a police lineup, it turns into a police station shootout. The first time. Like this guy, this guy does not have it all together and like he he's constantly 
like there's literally a scene where he tries to escape a cop in a porn theater and re- literally does the three stooges like if i just put my hand on the side of my face they can't see me oh boy like it's ridiculous this guy and everything you just brought up actually speaks to me speaks to the quality of the writing it's like okay in the in the when the police go and visit the porno theater and find him it's like they go after him and normally you would lose your person there you know what i mean and now it's like the hunt continues right no they arrested him or they brought him in and then it's like here he is next scene in the lineup and it's like okay well now he's gonna like like she can't properly identify him because she can't be sure so they have to let him go and it's like there's no way and then it's a shootout I feel like the writer's constantly taking the harder way out, which makes it so fun to watch. Yeah, no, I would agree with that entirely. And and this cast is really something special. I mean, we mentioned Susan Tyrell. Uh, I need to mention who her roommate is in this, because what we are shortchanging ourselves of is the spinoff sitcom that should have happened here called Solly and May. Uh, Susan Tyrell plays Solly Mosler, who's... Uh, whose eyebrows are not fucking around or taking any prisoners. Can we just start there? Her eyebrows are a Sharpie on a latex mask. It's amazing. (laughs) And I feel like we actually just described a lot of Susan Tyrell's appearances in films because I can now think of like three other movies where she's he's she's uh, sporting that exact same look. And she's giving it like it's like watching her watching her perform anything is like watching it's like she believes the character. Like I just imagine that when the camera stops, she's still her, but you know, and with somebody like may, um, or I guess like the actor is Dick Sean playing. What is either a drag or trans role? We didn't, he didn't self identify or she didn't self identify as may, um, but spends the most Mm -hmm. of the movie in um, female presenting clothing. And the two of them, Mm -hmm. like the way they fight with each other, it feels so real. Like that's what I'm talking yeah. about when it's like authentic relationships, like throughout the whole movie, they just bicker and it's hilarious, but you can tell it comes from a place of love. He has a, like, first of all, Dick Sean in this movie, he may be my favorite thing about this movie. The, the actor, Dick Sean playing the character may, because just the one liners and the constant quipping, like it just never stops. Anytime someone it crosses by, it's like there's a scene where like kids go by. And it's like dirty little pygmies or like, you know, or there's, there's <laughs> yeah. one scene where uh, he's like, I don't mind the because uh, uh, Susan Tyrell's blowing smoke and it goes, I don't mind the smoke, but the smell of your breath is your right breath. behind it. It's, oh, it's <laughs> so good. Yeah. And the delivery. It's just like it. It, they never they never let up, and that's what I want in the sequel. Um, mm-hmm. wait, have you seen um, Avenging Angel? I have seen both of the sequels. Now, okay, it's been cool. so long ago that I can't remember a lot about either one of them other than that the, the lead character is recast. Mm-hmm. But, just but yeah, I, I remember seeing... I did see the sequel. Yeah. Um, well, okay, and the way that we meet everybody, it's like angels walking down the street. Like, as we... T- we they introduce the cast one at a time in a way that's like, you fall in love with every character everybody yep. knows angel everybody like even the people like she's walking down um hollywood boulevard and she's walking across the stars and somebody whose job it is to scrub them clean in the morning is like morning angel or and it's just like and then she goes to school where they all call her molly so it's like yeah. it lets you know that her life outside of there it's like she has a whole life built on that boulevard it's amazing there's a portion of this film that feels like Paul Schrader's blue collar, but for sex workers. <laughs> like, it's just like, that's just, they're just living in this industry and they all know each other because they all work in it. And it's just like the most natural yeah. lived in occupation. Like, it's just, it's really different from any other movie about serial killers or about prostitutes that was released in the 80s. Yeah, I think it's like, uh, you know, 
upon a rewatch, just because I wanted to be as fresh as possible, I was like looking at it as the A story in this movie is just Angel. And will she, will her, you know, will her identity be found out? It's like the killing just happens kind of on the side. Um, And it's this horrific thing that catches up, but it's like kind of inevitable because it's just like they are such a vulnerable population. So it's just like, I don't know, really cool that like, I think that's a way to really get everybody invested. Like for me, everybody that died broke my heart. I could not, and I wrote that down because they they really do this great job of not only making you love the characters, but really selling you on some of these plots. Like I really think you nailed it when you talked about the heart of this movie because even though, even though the the premise is super super sleazetastic and it like it's the kind of thing like if you just read the plot line, yeah. you would assume that this movie was directed by Matt Gates. Like it's just <laughs> like it's that like really kind of disgusting and yet there's so much heart in it like right down to the uh the whole pathos of angel being an orphan who's having to grow up too fast and this whole sort of storyline about having she's she's having to pretend that her mother's still alive and it's just it's so gut-wrenching this movie doesn't it it understands that angel's doing what she has to do and i think that in this genre because i i do love like I love sex worker fights back movies, you know, like I love strip to kill. I love, I I just love, uh, I like, I know who killed me, you know? (laughs) And there's, there's a way there are a lot of, I feel like this material is often presented as just like, Oh, poor her. And like, yes, we do feel for her. Like we understand that it is a poor her situation, but angel doesn't pity herself. She's doing the best she can in giving what she's got. And she's actually thriving. Like she, mm-hmm. she is a straight A student at school at, at a private school that she, I think the, the implication is that she's paying for it to be there. Um, right. And she's, and everybody that she like meets just wants to instinctively protect her, but can't because she's kind of, this, these are the, this is the hand she's dealt. Right. And so as a result, you get all these lovable people who just want the best for her. And it's like, wow, that is not what I expected. The movie makes, and this is the writing again, makes the really smart choice of it seems like what's happening is she's lying about her age in order that she can be a hooker and, you know, make rent. The movie turns the the finger wagging not against sex workers, but against the people who patronize sex workers by, like, making it so that she is telling people that she's 14 years old. And literally, she has a clientele who only want her if she's 14. And so it really does change the judgment, like who this movie is really judging. Yeah. And I love that she calls that guy out, even though he's a cop. But she's just like, oh, is this what you get off on? Like little girls. And it's just like, okay. So Angel's very, like she's bold. And then there's the Mm -hmm. other thing that happens that I don't see in um, sex worker movies where she says, like a guy offers her $20. And instead of, it's usually like a sad moment where it's like, okay. Like, cause you got to do what you got to do. And instead angel laughs and she's like, you have a good night. <laughs> I'm yeah. like, oh my God. It's just the way that it handles the, the, the lens in which it looks at sex workers. Like this movie is just like, Hey, we're going to show you, uh, we're going to show you people and humanity. I think they shortened the title down a couple of letters. Originally it was going to be agency. Cause that's literally what she has throughout this entire movie. Oh, and it's incredible to watch. Yeah, truly all the way to the end. Donna Wilkes in her own life has a moment where I feel like she was forced to kind of, you know, not, not to this extreme of course, but having to kind of live a lie in order to get what she wanted because she moved to Hollywood at 15 
and there were no opportunities for a girl her age. So she convinced two different employers that she was 18 years old and married. And for the next year, she worked 16 hour days, five days a week as a uh, computer operator for an ambulance service. No way. So she was literally like pulling some of these cons in order to just make rent, like lying about her age and convincing. But like she was kind of catch me if you canning Hollywood back in the 70s. Dude, that's incredible. I mean, you can see she she also uh, is the heart of the film in terms of the cast. And so it's like watching, like knowing that she brings something kind of similar into that. I mean, it reads it does. I will say, I think her performance, I like to say that she's giving a deli performance because it's both hammy and cheesy. Yes. And and I appreciate that. Don't get me wrong. And by the way, I just want to slide right back to something you said earlier. You so timidly said, I like, I know who killed me. Oh, yeah. And I just want you to know, Sam, you never have to be ashamed for liking it <laughs> I mean, this podcast. <laughs> I, I don't feel shame for it, but I do expect to hear about it when I bring it up. <laughs> So, <laughs> no, I love it. I love I Know Who Killed Me. Yeah, we have a whole episode about it. And um, the people that made the movie reached out after uh, after it aired. It was really cool. I have an I Know That's Who Killed amazing. Me tattoo on my hand. It's like a the the glass coffin with the rose. I appreciate the commitment. That's that's <laughs> what I will say. And, and honestly, again, you're on a podcast right now who one of our battle cries is Battle Truck. Battle Truck. So it's not like we have any room to judge anybody for the movies that they like. And that's how we like it, damn it. After these messages, we'll be right back. Who's got more toys than all the rest? Who's got the newest? Who's got the best? Got video games by the score. Got super low prices and a whole lot more. More trains and bikes. More games I like. More dogs, more balls, more bats. Child World, that's where it's at. Child World, what's back to back? If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. But yeah, even though her performance, like I said, it's a little hammy, it's a little cheesy. She is still the heart of this movie. But her anger, though, like I agree with you with the hammy and cheesy part. But when she is self-righteous, that feels real. Like that feels like that comes from a place of like, no, I get this girl. Like because a lot of the movies she, you know, like a lot of, you know, 20s playing younger, especially in the 80s. It is really cheesy. She's yelling a lot of her lines. She's Lisa and Stephanie at Epcot. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Oh, and definitely. I am one of the few people who knows exactly what she means. (laughs) But when she is fucked with and she has to turn around and find that strength inside, that's when you feel it. It's like, oh, wait, that was there the whole time? 
I felt it just in the fact that she's running down Hollywood Boulevard for this bizarre finale in heels and running oh, full sprint the God. entire time. In heel, they don't even cut away. Like it's like no, she is she is running in heels. It's amazing, and and the tiniest little things like this is this is pro level work. It is so impressive, and it's just like seeing Angel running down Hollywood Boulevard in heels with a gun, just like openly waving that thing around. When you know, because when you watch the rest of this movie, and again, credit to Andrew Davis, this movie has a very run and gun feel to it, where it feels like no permits necessary kind of situation. They're just lining people up as extras on the street. They're clearly, if you look at IMDb, the uncredited extras are clearly just people who were doing whatever the hell it is they were doing at the time. So this feels very like that era of Roger Corman and Larry Cohen filmmaking of like, permits be damned. We'll just get the shot as we get it. So the fact that she's running around brandishing this gun is even more impressive. (laughs) Yeah, that is, I mean, truly wild. Could never today. And you don't see Charlie Bronson that doing that. I'm saying that's all I'm saying is like, give me one Death Wish movie where he's in heels. <laughs> the fifth one was about the fashion industry. Why couldn't we do it just once? I mean, if Stallone can do it in Nighthawks, you can't tell me Bronson wouldn't do it once. <laughs> yeah, it's where is it? I want to see it. <laughs> it's in a vault somewhere, and we will find it. But one person in the cast we haven't mentioned yet, who I really, really, really want to talk about, is Rory Calhoun <sighs> as the cowboy Kit Carson. Kit is. Kit is incredible. I mean, I keep saying it about all of them, but I he's just so lovable. He's grandpa. Like Kit is like, yeah. I want him. So he plays a cowboy who uh, has a couple of guns that he's always showing off how he like he's a gunslinger on Hollywood Boulevard, except they're real. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and he's just uh, he's so sweet and kind to Angel and protective in a way that a dad would be. And since she doesn't have a dad or a dad that ran out nine years ago. It's it's just like what he brings to that performance is like, I just want to hug him. Yeah. And then the the added pathos later of you start to realize that he is slowly slipping into dementia. Yeah. And they like even he gets that moment. You know what I mean? Like even he gets a storyline and we really get to know him and we feel for him and we love him. And the one thing I just could not could not wrap my head around is why if they wanted to make up Rory Calhoun to look so much like LQ Jones, why they just didn't cast LQ Jones. Mm. The, the character actor, uh, probably most people know him from casino. He's the, the cowboy that like gives Robert De Niro all that shit, but he looks oh, yeah. exactly like Rory Calhoun in this movie. Yeah. He, I, I mean, and also similar vibes to, um, I mean, like Sam Elliott, you know, like oh, what 100%. he's doing right now, which is so ironic because, I mean, it's revealed later that he is a gay cowboy, which I love a gay yeah. cowboy in 1983. And it's like, I don't know, fuck you or take that, Sam Elliott. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like th- this has been happening longer than you can imagine. So, yeah, I love it. He's absolutely great in this. I mean, it's a far cry from Farmer Vincent. That's all I'm going to say. Like, it's a very different role. You're going to love him in this. And there was a moment, and this is a weird sidebar. But we go and visit his warehouse home where and they shoot it in such a way where she's like impressed but what we're seeing in the shot before it rotates is just like an empty warehouse and she's like this is so cool and i'm like oh she's humoring him but then then they turn and you see he's got all this really great old west memorabilia and one of the things he had on his wall was this you know traveling buffalo bill show banner and what really just blew my mind is it had the name nathan salisbury 
And I was like, wait a minute, what's this? Because that is my last name, you know, sli- spelled slightly differently. But I was like, what the hell? And turns out he was the guy who basically created the show, was the producer for the actual Buffalo Bill. And it sent me down this like 23 and me rabbit hole trying to figure <laughs> out if me and this guy are related. So this viewing kind of blew my mind because I was like, oh, I might have a, a more personal connection to this film than I thought. Did you find out definitively if so? Because that would be awesome. I only got I could only trace about three relatives, but the area of the country that he's from is where my mom's family is from and where my dad's family moved to. So it's possible. It is possible that I'm related to this person. No, that's enough for me. It's definite. <laughs> Love it. Yep. Steal it. Verified and ratified <laughs> right here on Junk Food Cinema. But he also has all of these mannequins. All these mannequin torsos that until they start shooting them, I was I was legitimately worried that he maybe had Joe Spinell for a roommate because I was like, <laughs> what is with all the creepy mannequins in this apartment? Yeah, I actually when I first saw it, it was like, where is this going? You know, yeah. like when you look at his set, it's uh, his set, his room. It's like it's getting to see this completely different side of him than you see before. It's like, oh, no, he is a cowboy like he he like lives and breathes and is this person. And then it's got all the weird stuff, which I love. Um, but he teaches her to shoot Mm -hmm. and, uh, and also, Oh God. Okay. I can't keep asking about the sequel, but he's, he's in the sequel and he's amazing. Like if you wanted more Susan Tyrell and, uh, and you wanted more kit, see avenging angel. Cause that's their, that's their vehicle. Sam, I think we're going to have to have you back and we're going to have to talk about Avenging Angel at some point. <laughs> we're just going to have to cover the whole last time. I'll bring it up. I swear. No, no, no. But- I, no, because you're making me realize I really should have watched it before we did this because now I really want to fucking watch it. Well, And it's just one of these rare examples of a sequel that I think, while very different than the original, is on par. I mean, it is if, if only just slightly below the original. I mean, I don't know, because just because it's like Angel is Angel. I mean, it, that's it. Right. Um, but but the fact that it brings back these beloved characters, it's like it knows what it knows what the value of that first film is. So, yeah, got to do it. I bought the like the the triple feature DVD that came out, I think, from Shout Factory many years ago. And I do remember going through But for whatever reason, this is the only one that I've been able to retain. Maybe I've got a Kit Carson problem going on myself where things are just slowly sliding out of my memory. <laughs> but I am definitely going to watch Avenging Angel as soon as we're done recording here. Four years ago, she made a promise to stay off the streets. Now she's back with a vengeance. Avenging Angel. When you get to hell, tell him an angel sent you. Our all-new Hollywood adventure, rated R. But yeah, I just, I really love the fact that even though, even though it seems like, and I feel like if you had one criticism about the finale of this movie, it does feel a little, it does feel like Angel gets cheated a little bit, that she's not the one that blows this guy away. But when you watch the scene that we're talking about in Kit Carson's apartment, you realize that we have a Chekhov's cowboy in play. And if you establish a cowboy with guns in the first act, (laughs) by the end of the movie, he has to kill the serial killer. Yes. And I think that on because it's so earned, normally it wouldn't be. And you don't want somebody to come in and like, you know, kill for your final girl. But at the end of the day, she is a girl. Yes. And so it's like that he protects her like the 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 little bit of innocence that she has left is like he's like, no, this is this is my move, you know. Mm -hmm. And I I think that that's actually really beautiful, even though I want to see her kick ass. It's honestly enough seeing her stand up and just be like, I don't give a fuck. It, it really like I, I feel that it, actually I was uh, introduced. This is a weird tangent, but I was introducing my wife to uh, the Sopranos and we're getting into season three. And there's, of course, the episode where Dr. Melfi 
uh, is raped and she has to decide if she's going to tell Tony Soprano about it because she knows as soon as she does, this guy will be killed. But it's sort Mm. of that like not wanting to descend into darkness thing. So maybe that's what's going on with Angel and why it's Kit that has to come through and save the day is because at the end of the day, she is still 14 years old as you know, no matter the agency that she has, we don't want to see her cross that line and lose her innocence. You know, and it's interesting to me that they're all like the people protecting that innocence. It's not the structures in place. It's not the school. And we can get, we'll get to that. It's not the school. It's not the police. It really is like the people who are rejected by those institutions, like the people who are on the streets and just getting by. And it's like, they're the people that really, that really give her a home and a family and the protection that she needs. Absolutely. And one other person behind the camera that I haven't mentioned yet is the uh, composer, Craig Safin, who has done so many scores for so many movies we've either talked about or we're going to talk about. He did the scores for The Legend of Billie Jean, The Last Starfighter, Fade to Black, Corvette Summer, Remo Williams, like all of these movies that feel right at home on this podcast. And (laughs) yeah. He does a score here that I don't know if you if you notice this as well, but there are times in the score in the quiet moments where it really sounds like the quiet moments of the Prince of Darkness score. And it was kind of tripping me out because I'm like, did Carpenter see this movie? Because they sound very similar in those quiet moments. And I have to say on the note of that, like when they pull back, it's like. It feels as important as the score when there's a lack of it. It's like the timing of it is just like it. it, It's always when it's going to rip my heart out. And I never expected a movie like this to rip my heart out. And that it does again and again. And I mean, we have a serial killer who, as soon as he has to shoot his way out of a police station, like he's a Terminator in a James Cameron film, he comes up with a, a pretty clever ruse, I'll, I'll have to say, where he shaves his head and pretends to be one of the street Hare Krishnas. Yes. So good. It's it's a really smart, That's like it's so the one smart. time where you're like, okay, maybe this guy's got a little bit something on the ball where everything else just seems like frantic and accidental, like very much an unorganized serial killer if you want to get really forensic about it. But this is the one moment where I'm like, okay, he, he's he got some things on the ball here. Let's talk about the introduction of the killer because I, I think it's really smart. It's like mm-hmm. there's this um, – one of the sex workers, her name's Crystal. She has a whole scene where she's talking to May and, and Angel and everybody about how she's going to get out of this town. And um, and she goes and sees Yo-Yo, who's a street performing clown, and they're flirting and it's so beautiful. And he's like, and it's just so legitimately a moment where the two of them connect that, and they're mm-hmm. going to meet up later. And it's just like, you just want something good for her. But right. first she picks up a John and that John is our killer. And the killer, obviously, he murders her just around the corner from people who could help her. Um, and it's so gut-wrenching because what we've just been introduced to is like the entire carnival that is L.A., it's like, yep. it feels warm and it's like, oh, maybe that's what this is. And it's like, no, this is still dangerous. Right. And what we get with the killer in the first time he's alone is the way he eats that fucking egg. I was okay. I had a Come note on. to ask you. Here's the question. Here's how I was going to frame it, Sam. What is the weirder food habit? Switchblade egg in this movie or Cobretti scissor pizza in Cobra? <laughs> Listen, switchblade egg. That takes the cake for me over anything. I mean, it's a real like uh, Dennis the Menace knife on the apple moment, except it's an egg. It's like, what? This, and it's it. all in one shot. So they don't cut away. So it has this feeling like it's divine um, eating poop, you know, in Pink Flamingos. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Where it's like, we're not going to cut away. We're going to show you. He like uses a switchblade to make a little hole in it. He sucks the inside out of this raw egg. 
And then he crushes the egg in this like very like sensual way and then kisses a picture of his mom on the wall. It is safe to say that he doesn't so much eat this egg as he makes angry mouth love to this egg. Yeah, that fair. <laughs> there is there is a lot happening to this poor egg. Um, Did you just drop Dennis the Menace as another example of the kids movies that fucked us up? Because yeah. Christopher Lloyd, anything <laughs> in that movie is on par with Large Marge, if you ask me. You know what? Yeah. Terrifying. And and it's like, and the threat is real. It's like, it's, I love that, like, in the 80s, you could have movies where people want to kill kids. Why? And, and I'm sorry. I, I, we're going to go. Fuck it. Sidebar. Why did he want to kill Dennis? Like, it just seemed like, oh, my God, this guy, this kid witnessed me being on the street. And that's enough for me to commit infanticide. Like, what the fuck? That guy goes from zero to child murder so fast. Yeah. And also, like, Dennis is so cute. Like, I get like, listen, if there, if it's an annoying kid and it's like he just wants to kill him. It's like, I've been there. Who hasn't been there? Right. You're at the grocery store and some kid's crying in the cart next to you, but you can't get out of line. It's like, oh, my God. Sam, there was a kid at the grocery store yesterday who wouldn't stop like coming up to my kid and coughing in his face because he thought it was funny. I wanted to punt that little shit across the store. Where's Christopher Lloyd when you need him? (laughs) That's, That's what I'm saying. And then Dennis the Menace, the cutest kid in the world. It's like, all right. It seems this seems uncalled for. Yeah. The kid that they've aged down. Because I grew up, weirdly, I grew up watching the show, the old 50s show on Nick at Night, and that kid was like 14. That kid was Angel's age when he was Dennis the Menace. (laughs) And then they make the movie, and he's like three and a half. Like, what the hell is happening? Yeah. (laughs) Do you remember him eating the apple and cutting the skin off the entire around part? Oh, yeah. With a knife? That, like, I tried to do that as a kid and definitely cut myself. (laughs) And do you remember where he gets that apple? He spears it from the hand of an even younger kid than Dennis. Oh, that's right. Oh, my God. That was a terrifying scene. (laughs) That dude just wanted, like, he may have been a burglar by trade, but that dude wanted to dabble in kid murder. That was his hobby. This is a prequel to Freddy Krueger, for sure. (laughs) This is how you become a child killer. You start out as a burglar. And then you cut fruit with a knife. What if, oh my God, because doesn't he get burned by Dennis by that campfire? Wait, yeah. (gasps) Is this the real Freddy Krueger origin story? discover the prequel? Oh my God. (laughs) A menace on Elm Street, folks. A menace on Elm Street is happening. Oh man. I'm, I'm sorry. Make that happen. This I command. Oh my God. That's incredible. Oh my God. That would, what a crossover that would be. That's like when, um, when the show you went to Paris and I was like, he better meet Emily in Paris out there. Like <laughs> I want that crossover. Give me Emily in Paris, like a whole season of a girl who's completely unaware that she's dating a killer. Like I want that again, take a backseat there in game. We've got another ambitious crossover to talk about here. <laughs> After these messages, we'll be right back. In this quiet neighborhood, there lives a menace. This summer, watch out for the kid who's causing all the excitement. Dennis the Menace. He's only a boy, huh? That's me! Rated PG. Starts Friday, June 25th at a theater near you. (laughs) And I have to say, we talk a lot on this show about cinematic catnip, about very specific things that we love about 
very esoteric movies. And one of my very specific catnips for movies like this is when you see 42nd Street, or in this case, Hollywood Boulevard at its sleazy 80s best. Like when there are just, when you're just walking down the streets and you see the storefronts and you see the movie marquees, and there's one in this for Return of the Jedi. And I was like, yes. Like that is that is something that I love seeing in every movie. Like it's it's usually for me more Forty Second Street, but man, Hollywood Boulevard. Like I love that there's all these like porno theaters, there's regular movie theaters, and then there's just a delightful little ice cream parlor also in Hollywood Boulevard. Yes, that the time machine that we're yeah. traveling on yes. to get to this place is it. That's what makes it so special, and this is what I'm talking about with like cultural value. It's like yeah. this is this is the real thing because there's they're shooting parts of it without permits. Like you know when you're cutting away to some of the people on the street that those people didn't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. or, they, or they just asked, "Hey, can I film you while we walk by?" Like all the street performers and stuff. It's like this is this is actually a relic of a time. One hundred percent. And and you know it's you know that they're not actors because extras don't usually look right down the barrel of the camera like a lot of the people are. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. It's like, yeah, nobody needs a permit here. But did we also just tap into a reason why we both love these 90s promotional videos? This whole like, like, it really is like a cultural time capsule that we're talking about there as well. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, like, I part of what got me here and similar to the promotional time capsule thing. It's like, have you heard of a movie called Junior High School? It's like 37 minutes and it's from 1978. I will have you know we covered that on this podcast. <laughs> no fucking way. We did. Right. That's that's the one with Paula Abdul, right? Yes, Paula yeah. Abdul. Yes, Can't sir. get enough. The itty bitty titty committee. Are you kidding me? Yep. Like we talked about this, it. So that kind of level of like, okay, I'm watching a musical about middle schoolers experiencing these like very adult themes, and it's like camp, but it's also like I don't know, and it's also a musical. I mean, first off, uh, High School Musical could never. But so that's what actually like led me down the road to Angel because I started like I was like, you know, I love that movie. And of course, I love stuff like Revenge of the Cheerleaders. And so it's like that kind of nostalgic, um, like looking at youth through I don't, the way that we used to make movies about teens is really different than we do now. And so I love that kind of like, I don't know, veneer of it. You know, I love that yeah. cheesy shine. Uh, and so, yeah, it was a direct it was a straight line from junior high school to this. We covered that. And now I'm blanking because, again, I've got the Kit Carson syndrome. But I'm trying to remember we covered that as sort of a preamble to another movie made by the same people. And, and people who watch who listen to our show are screaming at me and screaming at their cars right now <laughs> as I'm not remembering what it was. Oh, my God. Yes. The, I know what you're talking about, though, because uh, I was because after I saw it, I was like, I need to see everything else this person made. I don't, is it Midnight Madness? I haven't I, I haven't seen it yet. I man, I got I got to go back and, and find that episode. And yes, sheath your tweets. I know that I'm fucking this up. Just tell me later. It's fine. <laughs> don't worry about it. But yeah, just being able to like see these streets. It's like shopping malls are another big one for me. Whenever there's a shopping mall on a movie, oh, and I'm yeah. like, holy crap, there's a Montgomery Ward over there. I'm losing my <laughs> mind right now. And also seeing just how you, you touched on it a little bit, but just how dirty and grimy and like colorful it's like it's so vegas i don't yeah. know i just like it's it's something that like because things have changed and um la is that's not it's not the same street and no. so it's really cool to see something like i don't know i personally like know pretty well that and seeing it in um a different costume oh yeah and and i feel like um there are two people in particular, two street performers that had to just be regulars on hollywood boulevard and were not created for the film cat guy is one of them 
guy oh, yeah. who's just posing like a cat and is drawing a crowd and must know Angel because they have a little like high sign to each other. And then, of course, old timey bike boy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What is happening here? Like, like which, first of all, if you have enough money to take a photo with one of those two people, Sam, and you're on Hollywood Boulevard in 1983, who are you getting a, a Polaroid with? I mean, God, is there a way to earn both? <laughs> I, like, I, I, you just have to barter because it's like that's that's uh, that's not a choice I'm willing to make. I understand. <laughs> I, I, that's a real Sophie's choice. And it's like all of the all of this, like it makes me want to do something like that. Like Hollywood Boulevard now still has street performers and people that you can take pictures with, but it's different. Like this is like there's like a magic show. There's I mean, there's so much stuff. It looks like fun, you know, mm-hmm. and it, and now it's like, OK, I can get a picture with like a, a four foot five Spider-Man. Right. You yeah. know, it's like, all right. I mean, cool. Um, it, this is something completely different. Yeah, it's like I can get my picture with fake Jack Sparrow, but can I still get a picture with Yo-Yo Charlie? Because I feel like I'd oh rather have a picture with Yo-Yo Charlie. Yo-Yo. Yes. No, you know what, though? Given the choice of any of them, my picture would be with him. Oh, yeah. yeah. He, that's hands down. I mean, he's just such a sweetheart, and he deserved that date with Crystal. I'm still pissed. Yeah, and they, they even... That's what I'm saying. Every single character in this weird troupe of You're like right. street you know monsters or whatever like they all have a really sweet story that you you hear about you learn about you love them and then they just fucking crush us with god every one of them yeah yeah it's so it it, like giving an arc to a street clown who we don't see very often i mean whoa you know i don't know it's 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 angel is just as well it's i'd actually say it's it's more about the people around her than it is her and i think that's what makes it so special it's like and coming for her, it affects the whole community. Coming for the sex workers who appear to be the backbone of this community. They're the ones that are presented as the paying customers at restaurants while other people are getting <laughs> kicked out. Like, they're the ones that have the tact to do things. Like, God, when Angel, when Angel's like, she buys a gun and she's like going to go kick some ass and there's like a great musical moment. She goes to church. She's in confession and then she she even like leaves money. Like a person who mm-hmm. needs money more than anything. But yeah. it's like. This is this is the way the world works. And she's here to be a part of it, you know, and not to just take from it. There are so many micro moments of the the characters in this movie being receptive to the sex worker community, being supportive of the sex worker community, being kind. Like like you said, even the diner owner who spends the whole movie like being the broadest caricature you've ever seen, Uh like a Greek diner owner, still has the line, you know, at least the hookers pay. You don't pay. Like he still has their back. And he's like, when she he asks how her mom's doing, because and she's like, oh, she loved the soup, which of course she doesn't really have a mom. She's took the soup home. But like, I love that. Like, he is somebody who cares, and now we know him as a person. He's like rough, but he cares about them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's a the partner. So we haven't mentioned him yet, but this Lieutenant Andrews, played by Cliff Gorman, at the beginning of this movie, he plucks a street cop out of uh, out of uniform to put him in plain clothes to be his like detective partner. And that guy, the first moment we see him, the only line he has before he gets made detective deputy or whatever is he goes, all right, I'll let you off with a warning. Just don't come back here. So he's even being kind to the prostitutes. Like, it's just like there's so much of that in this movie that you I mean, it can't be accidental. This movie definitely has a very specific 
I guess, opinion about uh, the people that that are sex workers, the people that have to do this for a living, what Hollywood Boulevard sort of creates in terms of a necessity for this. And honestly, most of the sleaze in this movie takes place at the high school, which is maybe not the argument that I want to be making, but it's just it's just another interesting facet of this film. Well, and what she does with the high schoolers who find out and try and rape rape her, or as they put it, like, we're going to give a new meaning to the word gangbang. I was like, oh, wow, that's a time capsule thing, because that means that wasn't the meaning then. Also, like, I was like, yeah, that's just the regular meaning. You guys don't yeah. know what the regular meaning is, so, so you can't give it a new meaning. Did Angel invent that meaning? Did it all start here? <laughs> This was ground zero. It all started with Dennis the Menace and that robber guy played by Christopher Lloyd. Somehow it's all connected. Yeah. If it weren't for Christopher Lloyd, we would not have Angel 1983. Yes. Somehow that makes sense. And what I love in that scene, and this is where, and this is why, like, look, I'm on here. I'm talking about all like the heart and the, and the love and all the things that I love about it. Cause that's what sells. That's what keeps me coming back. Sure. But what draws me in is shit like this scene where she's in a car and the guys are being awful to her because they're they're telling her they're going to rape her and she's like okay well hang on i'm just going to get a, get a rubber for my purse which is like heartbreaking and then she pulls out a gun and holds it to one of the guys heads it's just fucking awesome gets them all out of the car and like she like the leader of the gang who's just been like the worst to her like pisses his pants and she laughs at him and says look me up again rich when you're toilet trained yep. Rick. yeah it's just like oh that it, she's just it, she's perfect. <laughs> I also love that following that scene when he tries to rat on her and the I know the principal, the school counselor, I don't know, goes to like check her locker and doesn't find a single piece of evidence that she is a hooker does find a gun and yet somehow that seems to verify she's a hooker and that's what they're more concerned about i feel like they should be more concerned about the fact that it's a firearm at school but they're like oh no she is a hooker yeah obviously (laughs) she she's a a sex worker because she has a gun next to her biology book what (laughs) that's the conclusion it was a different time it was it was pre now so it was a different time uh, and then the the scene immediately after that with the, with this boy that's just kind of been, you know, kind of haplessly but harmlessly trying to get a date with her when he finds out she's a hooker and he's like, hey, I have twenty three dollars. Is that enough? And it breaks her. But at the same time, there's no malice in what he's asking. He's just like, like gullibly thinking that this is how it works now. Maybe this is the way to get close to her. He doesn't understand why what he did is wrong. Like it's this weird sort of puppy dog interaction that's so strange. And it's 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 like one of those things where her reaction to that and and how it how she falls apart. It's like, oh, they're not going to be able to get the toothpaste back in this tube. Exactly. You know, and that's why it's like just because as he's kind of innocently asking this terrible thing, it's like, okay, that even that's the best case scenario is this guy, because like earlier we had a scene where she politely declined a date with him and it was so sweet. And she's like, my mom doesn't think I'm old enough to date. It's like, (laughs) we, she's a sex worker. I love this. Yeah. So yeah, I, I also wanted to talk about the, the teacher who, what she does with that information and going to the house or Mm -hmm. the apartment, because that is why that is one of the coolest. I don't know. I think this movie's constantly flipping all the characters on their head. Mm-hmm. It's like this this teacher is introduced to us and we don't know if she's a threat or not. Right. Because like when we first meet her, she feels like she cares about her. But then it's like once you understand like the street world in this movie, you're like, no, this woman couldn't possibly understand what that is. And she's going to like 
rip Angel away and and do something that doesn't make sense right. for her life. And it's like that's it couldn't be that couldn't be more f- further from the truth. Like the reveal that she's there, that she's showing up because she cares about Angel and that she's not a homophobe. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And then and then like Susan Tyrell and her have this great back and forth that ends with her basically grabbing Susan Tyrell and adopting all of Susan Tyrell's mannerisms and lingo and everything. <laughs> and then when she walks away, Susan Tyrell's like, what's wrong with that broad? Just perfect. Just yeah. perfect. It's so good. It, it, I think. And she says something like the brass on her or whatever. Like she, yes. she kind of respects her. Yeah. She's like, all right, this is an HBIC. I get it. <laughs> A fucking mouse on that broad. And then upstairs, <laughs> like where May is like pulling a red riding hood and pre- red, red riding hood and pretending to be mom. Oh. Um, obviously, the teacher sees through it immediately, and you're like, "Oh fuck!" They cut away, and it's like, "This is going to be bad." When they cut back, the two of them are like laughing, having a good time, talking about how they just want the best for Angel. You know, he says earlier that uh, that he loves her more than her mom. You know, and it's like, and when she leaves, the teachers compliments um may's dress Mm -hmm. and then uh and it's like that's the moment where it's like acknowledging like not just not just tolerating a queer person but engaging with this person who you know would have so much stigma around i don't know it just it i don't think that would be an easy task for a lot of people just in general and yet this is 1983 it's like putting that putting it in that perspective this teacher's a fucking ally and she lets May know before she leaves. And that's another moment where I'm like, God, as a viewer, I'm like, this is, I want more movies like this. Right. You know? 100%. And it's, you know, many times on uh, Queer for Fear, uh, it is discussed how sometimes these these messages or these uh, like these desperate hopes for uh, representation are kind of couched within these these sort of sleazier or or more uh, crowd pleasing sort of elements. Yes. And I feel like this is another situation where someone in this in this filmmaking crew and I don't want to out anyone. I don't know who it may be, but somebody involved in the making this movie had something they wanted to say. And they used the sleaziest packaging possible to get this interesting uh, message about acceptance and inclusion and community out there, w- again, within the sleaziest package possible. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So, and speaking of Queer for Fear, just because there's like a little bit of a timeline that makes this even more impressive, which is like at the end of the 70s, you get something like Rocky Horror and and more of, it seems like we're moving, and John Waters and and it feels like we're moving more towards like an acceptance. Right. And even mm-hmm. like in, in, in trash cinema, like siege and, uh, uh, Oh God, I can't remember the other one, but there, there are, we're seeing queer characters who are rising up and fighting back. And that's crazy right. because we haven't been able to see that before. And then suddenly when AIDS happens, everything changes and we're not getting those sorts of portrayals anymore. We're getting queer coded characters. They're all villains, um, which I love a villain, but still it's just not, um, it's not great. So to see this crop up in exploitation cinema, to see this in like a cult film when that when everything in the mainstream was using the F word in another way, it's like mm-hmm. in this movie, Susan Tyrell uses it in a loving way. And it's and she's the only one. She's the only one in the whole movie that uses that word. Yep. And, and this comes the other Susan Tyrell movie that this reminds me of, at, at least in what you were talking about with like somebody behind the scenes. It just feels like there was something happening. Um, Butcher Baker Nightmare, like Nightmare Maker. Maker. I was like, yeah, that has to be the one you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, because that's a movie where it's like, surprise, this movie's not homophobic. 
um, yeah. just the bad guy. <laughs> yes, and played by Bo Svensson, I believe, in that movie. It's, it's so b- both of these would pair really well together, by the way, because um, yeah. it's just like and, and and that's just going back to kind of what we were talking about at the start of the episode. But it's like it's in these films that are way on the edges, the films that are being made when nobody's looking. That's where people are sneaking this stuff in and able to do it and able to take those swings that maybe would have been policed on a bigger level. That's what makes this movie so badass because it's taking those chances. Like, come on, this isn't an accident. Like they didn't just write this script and and go like, all right, yeah, this isn't touching any nerves. Like this is touching every nerve. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it's intentional, but they're able to get away with it. Kind of like Tammy and the T-Rex, you know what I mean? Where it's like yes. uh, just crazy trash on the surface, but inside there's a character who, um, who is just a fully fledged human that wouldn't exist in another movie like this if it had a bigger budget. And speaking of the budget, uh, Angel made for $3 million, ended up grossing 17.4, which was the best New World release of 1984 and, of course, led to the two sequels. So this was a big hit. Which is amazing, but also crazy to think about how it's kind of disappeared. Yeah. Like, I don't know. It doesn't have the following that it should have. Um, Now, it has a following. I'm not saying nobody's seen it, but but this movie shouldn't be as lost as it is. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. It should be. And that's I've been I honestly it's funny you mentioned Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker, a.k.a. Night Warning, because I've been trying to get people to see that forever. And for the longest time, it was just unavailable on any format. It was the craziest thing. I never really understood why that was. But I went to a screening of that film at Terror Tuesday. And this was when Susan Tyrell, shortly before she died, she came out and (gasps) did like a QA. and a Oh, my God. And I have to tell you, when you say that she seems like an angel, she's just living her truth and being Susan Tyrell. You are not wrong. That's her in real life. That is exactly what I want to hear. Oh, my God. That's amazing. What was it like? Like, did uh, sorry, anything you remember? Because it's like she I just I'm obsessed with her. I remember being very excited because I love the movie and very frightened because she had this <laughs> sort of coiled snake energy like she was just going to lash out and start smacking people and Perfect. then there was part of me that wanted to see it happen but there was another part of me that's like where are the exits uh, <laughs> and it was just it was one of the best Q&As I've ever seen I love that that's so fucking cool it was it was great but you I was like you are 100% right that the way she appears to be an angel where it just feels so authentic and lived in it's like yeah it's because it is <laughs> You know, interestingly, that this is like this movie was eighty three, and Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. If I if I remember correctly, it came out in eighty one, but then it was re released as Night Warning in eighty three, and it was more successful on the re release and around this time. So I love that Susan Tyrell's out here just picking material that's like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. I'm throwing myself into this. That's interesting because Angel, despite making all this money, never like. It was never at the top of the box office. It was always like riding the middle, but riding the middle for so long that it mm. ended up being the most successful movie that New World put out that year. So it's a very weird sort of like success that this movie has. But I think what it shows is sometimes even if the time period isn't ready for the message, if you sort of put the medicine in the ice cream <laughs> and then serve it to people, you know, it can still be successful. And I think that's a real triumph of, of Angel. Yeah, I mean... Uh- I'll be real. I think I'd have a hard time selling a movie like this now, you know, and it's like <laughs> letting let alone like then. So it's like putting the medicine in it is I, I wish there was even a stronger way to say it, because it's like what this movie does is the impossible. Mm-hmm. 
Like it really, truly to make this palatable to a mainstream audience at that time, it, this, it's no short of a miracle. It, and and I, when you watch it and the way that you were talking about, like it does like kind of shoot from the hip and just it's going, it, it does feel almost haphazard in its exploration. And yet it has to be so precise to pull off this thing that it pulls off. Yeah, could not agree more. Sorry, is it okay if I just bring one thing up? Because it is oh, please, one please, of the most please. important things in my opinion, but the lieutenant. Yes. We haven't talked about him and only, I just want to bring up one thing about him, which is that he doesn't try and fuck her. And that's important because in this genre, it's like the lieutenant being creepy. I'm waiting for that to happen the whole movie. Right. Like, and when he hugs her, everything, it's like when he goes back to her apartment, it always feels like there's a danger. And it turns out he just wants the best for her eventually. Like, I don't know. He doesn't want to hurt her. I, it's amazing. Like that doesn't happen. So Every character just subverting expectations. Yeah, I mean, in other films that I've seen in this era, like this cop is played by Wings Hauser. And uh, even though he wants to protect her, he also wants to get her in bed. Like, you're absolutely right. Like, that is something that in any other movie would definitely have happened. And, you know, they, they steer away from that. I feel like as sleazy as it is and as creepy as it is, they are able to do so much because she's 14 in the movie. Do you know what I mean? Like, it would mm. never be acceptable for the hero to sleep with an underage girl. So they were never going to be able to do that. And I feel like that, that sort of roadblock actually is the reason they go down so many more interesting streets. Yeah. I mean, and I, hopefully they would not do that, but <laughs> I guess we can't I, say for sure. I do feel like we see a lot of men, including another officer interact with her in a way that was not okay. Truth. That is, so that it's is like, very true. so to have him, who is questionably is he a hero is he not and and have him ride that line but not actually cross it is really great it's yeah it's i honestly if you haven't seen angel it's streaming right now on shutter you don't have any excuse you need to go watch it immediately and then obviously hit us up on social media and let us know what you thought of it but i just think it's like you know like sam said it's a movie that should not be as lost and forgotten as it is it has an amazing cast amazing people behind the camera working on it and a really interesting message and thought experiment that is just housed within something that feels like the the grimiest of drive-in fare and I, I love that sort of weird contradiction that it that it represents it's, it's just really phenomenal that's great i had no idea it was streaming on shutter right now that's fucking awesome because that's so accessible yeah yep. guys you have no excuse you just got to do it it's you're gonna you will love it <laughs> and while you're there you can also see queer for fear and while you're there you can also see uh in search of darkness part three where you'll see me and then you can head over to YouTube and watch Barbie's Epcot Birthday 94 and understand that these girls have to be stopped. They, they are menaces. They are Dennis the menaces <laughs> to society. Get them, Freddy. <laughs> Friends call me Snow Miser. Whatever I touch turns to snow in my clutch. <laughs> and that brings us to the junk food pairing. And for this one, I had one in mind. That was deeply researched, but just felt too icky. So I'm gonna I'm gonna sidestep that one to go with something a lot more wholesome. But I'll still tell you what my original idea was. Got to hear it. I'm gonna go with some Rocky Road ice cream from that delightful little ice cream parlor on uh, on Hollywood Boulevard for one additional reason than they just talk about it in the movie. So I mentioned already how much I am in love with Dick Sean in this movie. How I think he really does steal the whole film. Do you know what one of Dick Sean's other flagship credits is? No idea. He is the voice of the snow miser in <gasps> the year without no. a Santa Claus. Shut your mouth. 
Yep. What? He's I Mr. White Christmas. He's Mr. Oh Snow. Oh my god. Dude, okay, I I my other lo- my other great love other than horror is Christmas. So it's like, oh my that this this reveal, this this movie just shot from a 10 to an 11 for me. <laughs> that explains why you're wearing the uh the black Christmas sweater on In Search of Darkness. That makes so much yep. sense. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, what were you thinking for a junk food pairing for Angel? Did anything crop up as you were watching it? Like, I have a craving for this. Oh, yeah. It it has to be. For me, there's one food. And it has to be like an inappropriately giant lollipop, like one of those rainbow ones. Because <laughs> because this movie does that to this actress constantly. Like, putting yes. her in, like, like, long stockings and that kind of thing. And so, as an adult watching the movie, you need to have something, like, very large and childish in your hand. God damn, that's perfect. And it's colorful, just like Hollywood Boulevard. Okay, so now that you've said that, I feel like that's a gateway for me to tell you what I was going to go with. Um, <laughs> I found out that between 1979 and 1984, Quaker put out a serial called Havsies. And uh, it was it was basically, it was like half the sugar of most sweetened cereals. And it was a reaction to, oh, what, you know, everyone's grumbling about, uh, you know, there's too much sugar in kids' cereals. So we're going to make a cereal called Havsies. And I'm sorry, on the surface, that just sounds like the filthiest name for a cereal that I've ever heard. <laughs> and something you could definitely ask for on Hollywood Boulevard would be oh, Havsies. Sure. And it existed right in the time period that this movie was, uh, was made and came out. So it just felt very... But like adic- appropriate, but inappropriate as well. So I, I show no, that's, that that's the food. No, you get your happy <laughs> cereal. You get your giant lollipop. Put on your bobby socks. We're going to L.A. <laughs> we're going to pitch Menace on Elm Street right now. That's where we're headed. <laughs> oh, my God, Sam. This was every bit as perfect as I thought it would be. And I just want to thank you so much for for being on the show today. And please tell people where they can find you online. Um at Sam Wyman on Twitter or Instagram. Um, and you can find my podcast, Odds Tyrion, anywhere you listen to podcasts. Highly, highly recommend because, again, without Odds Tyrion, I would not know the joy of Barbie's Epcot Birthday 94. <laughs> and as someone, I got to tell you, as someone who went to Disney World so much as a kid, because my, my mom is obsessed with Disney. And one of the things we grew up on was sort of the Disney, like, uh, here's what you can do with the park promotional videos that would change every couple of years. And uh, you probably know exactly the video I'm talking oh about. Oh, my God. Yeah. 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 So seeing the Epcot thing, you know, obviously Barbie, not as much a toy that I played with as a kid, but I love anything that shows me how Disney World has changed over the years. And that was so perfect. And I was just like, oh, I'm so into that. I would never know about it if it weren't for Odsterian. So thank you very much. God, that that makes my day. That's what I want. I want to I want to uh I want to open up people to things that they might not have seen and you've seen everything. So <laughs> that's a big deal. What's the opposite of a brag? Because I feel like when I tell people that it doesn't come off as a brag. <laughs> no, just have me tell people that. Just yes. call me up. FaceTime me. Yes, Sam my hype it. man uh, will field all calls <laughs> about what I have and have not seen. Thank you very much. Oh, guys, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. You can find us, of course, on your favorite social media platforms at Junk Food Cinema and wherever you find your podcast, you can get our back catalog. And if you really like the show, I mean, you like it as much as we like weird 90s promotional videos. Go to patreon.com slash Junk Food Cinema and support the show. We greatly appreciate it. But uh, we're going to get out of here because we want you to remember that there's more to life than getting straight A's. There is also Barbie's Epcot birthday.
Why don't you go home now and spank your monkey numb nuts? Rap, rap, did someone say? It's almost time to go away. But just a reminder, before we do, there's lots of other things we have for you. A contest could take you to Disney World, or send you to a college where this flag's unfurled, or even a great big shopping spree where the toys you want are absolutely free. So make your holiday wish list now before we take our final bow. We all want you to please come back. But now, Mr. Director, fade to black.